Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, this is Vernon Oaks, and it's a beautiful, beautiful Thursday morning here in the D.C. metropolitan area. And you know, last weekend I had a great time out in Cincinnati at the Cincinnati Union Cooperative Initiative, meeting people that are working in this cooperative venue, uh, getting things done, really helping people. And you know, I'm looking forward in April, April 29th and 30th, to run out to San Diego this coming year to the California Center for Cooperative Development when they're having their conference. And on the line this morning... Try to get them to come in from California, but Kim and Maya wouldn't come in. But they're on the line. Good morning, Kim and Maya. Good morning. Good morning. How are you guys doing this morning? Good. Doing really well. Thanks. Thanks for having us on the show. At 7.30 in the morning, you're doing well, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for getting up early and coming on the show. So what is the California Center for Cooperative Development? Well, we're a, a nonprofit that was um, started in 2007 to you know, develop co-ops, help people learn about the cooperative model, and to support cooperatives that are in operation already. And we um, actually were part of the University of California at Davis prior to 2007, but due to some budget crunches, the center closed in 2004, so we opened um, an independent nonprofit. So we've been around for a long time. Okay, so before the center, you were at the University of California at Davis? Right, right. And it was a center for cooperatives also. So, Kim, that's where you were working before, right? Yes. Okay. Okay, so you've been in this work. See, I only give you about 25 years, but you've been working in this about 20 years or so now? Uh, about 25, yeah. <laughs> okay. So you're 25 years old and you've been working in here for 25 years? Yeah, you got it. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right. It's a real pleasure to have you guys on the line this morning. So you have a beautiful webpage, uh, cccd.coop. And I really like the way at the top you have all of the different types of co-ops, and you can pick on them and click on those co-ops and and get a um, real good sense of housing co-ops and credit unions and food co-ops and utilities and worker co-ops. You have it all laid out. That's really beautiful. So what would you like to talk about this morning? Which one of those? Well, um, I was hoping that uh, Mike could tell about a new initiative that she has um, uh, really is pioneering in the co-op world. And what is that initiative, Maya? Uh, yes, I've been working on worker cooperative farms. And, you know, we've had uh, agricultural cooperatives for a long time in the U.S. You know, we know them as marketing, producer, uh, aggregation co-ops. But we haven't really seen the worker cooperative model within the agricultural sector. And at this time uh, where the average age of the American farmer is 58 years old, and each year that number gets higher and higher, um, we're really getting to a point where uh, people are starting to worry about the future of farming. Who's going to do the farming for, you know, one of the largest agricultural producers, uh, for the, the world, and in California in particular, you know, we are the largest agricultural producer for, for the U.S. So in thinking about how people can come to access land, um, which in California is very expensive, um, to access the capital, or even to have the diversity of skills required to run a farm business, you know, which 
requires not only knowing how to farm, to do crop planning, irrigation, pest management, but also, you know, the business pieces, bookkeeping, marketing. So recently I've been working with several groups of young farmers who have uh, several years of farming experience and want to move on to farm ownership. And so they have um, heard of the cooperative model and approached our center uh, to receive assistance in developing their own worker cooperative farm. Okay, Mia, let me, let, me, other... let me stop you a minute because you said a, a lot so far, so I want to break it down and make sure everybody <laughs> understands. Uh, sure. And it seems very exciting. Well, first off, definition. The type of co-op depends on who owns or controls the business. So if the employees own and control the business, it's called a worker cooperative. So any business you can think of could be a worker cooperative. And then That's the right. second major form is a consumer cooperative. That's when the business is owned and controlled by the people that buys the products or services. And examples of those are credit unions, housing co-ops, and it could be any business. There's a in Madison, Wisconsin, there is a health clinic that's owned by the patients. It's a consumer cooperative that's patient centric. So all of their policies and procedures are developed by the patients for the patients. Um, and then you have, and you mentioned two of them uh, on for particular for farmers, and a lot of artists are doing this now. Is a purchasing co-op um, where people come together and buy things in bulk. And they, they hire a staff, perhaps, that will get the skill sets to know in farming what's the best types of seeds to buy or fertilizer or equipment even. They may pool their money together and buy things so that the farmer doesn't have have to have all of those skills. And from what you're talking about, they could also maybe form a co-op where they could buy the administrative skills, the accounting, bookkeeping stuff. And then on the other end for farmers are the marketing co-ops. And that's when the farmers will create a business that will market their products and get it out to more markets than they could do themselves. So those are the four major types, and then you have all kinds of variations of those. And food co-ops could be either owned by the employees, would be a worker cooperative, or it could be owned by the people that that buy in that food co-op and be a consumer cooperative. And I've heard of a couple that are mixed group, but owned by both the consumers and they're owned by the employees. So I just want to get that in there. So when you're, when you're talking about you've had farmer cooperatives, both producing and marketing, and now you're getting ready to look at, uh, which it sounds very exciting, these young farmers to come together and own the farms? Is that where you're headed? That's right. Yeah. And so it's the farmers who are workers and simultaneously the owners. Because I would imagine that land in California has not gone down. <laughs> Certainly not. Yeah. I lived, in, I lived in San Diego in 1972 through 74. Oh. And, and I've just done nothing but sit back in different places in the world and watch and hear about how the prices of land and, and uh, real estate has gone up in California. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what are you doing to get us started? All right, so for these farmers, they need help with the cooperative development piece, you know, understanding the process for incorporation and those logistics, uh, but also the interpersonal element, you know, um, how to do group decision-making, um, especially <laughs> in stressful times, right, where if you're a farmer and there are certain times of year where, you know, all of the vegetables are exploding out of the ground and you're under a lot of pressure within the season to market and harvest, but also, you know, needing to make decisions together. Also around, you know, financial bookkeeping and uh, other elements of running a cooperative business. And also a, n- a new piece that's special to California is that we recently passed a worker cooperative statute called AB 816, and that passed in 2016, which separates worker cooperatives from the consumer cooperative statute of California. Um, And so a lot of my work has also been informing these groups about these particular new worker cooperative statutes. What what does that statute at law say? 
Can you break it down a little bit? I'm curious. <laughs> yeah. I mean, some outstanding uh, pieces of it are that it enables the entire group of worker owners to be the board of directors, as opposed to if it's previous iteration under the consumer co-op model, and then they would need to elect uh, board members from their entity. This time, you know, they can they can opt to just have all of the members be board members. It also changes the required amount of time or number of times that they have to have their annual meeting. You know, in a worker co-op model, you are working with the membership because they are your fellow co-workers. And so the requirements are different in terms of the, the frequency uh, in which you have to meet and um, how you make those announcements. Kim was involved in the, the writing of that, so I also want to give her the chance to speak to some of the other outstanding pieces that, that separated from the historic statutes that we had to work in. Kim, you want to talk about that? Um, well, another thing that it did is just to kind of clarify worker co-ops a little bit more because prior to that, worker co-ops had to use the um, consumer statute, which there's still one statute. This just adds the option of being, being declared a worker co-op cooperative, and we're hoping that will help a little bit with tax issues that come sometimes come up with uh, in uh, worker co-ops. So the whole co-op, if you've got 20 workers that could have a 20-member board, or they could elect to have a five-member board, but the workers would decide that. Is that one of them? Exactly, yeah. And the second one that I heard you say was in most co I know housing co-ops that I manage, they mostly talk about an annual membership meeting, and the board of directors may meet monthly or quarterly or every other month, but they would have an annual membership meeting. So in this statute, you could meet, how often could the members meet or could I say? Uh, you can even meet more frequently than that. Okay. <laughs> as much as we uh, don't necessarily always like meetings, you, you can opt for more frequent meetings. Yeah, I think I think the main thing are the reporting requirements. You know, if you have a, a worker cooperative where you're working together every day, five days a week, and you have a reporting requirement that says that you need to uh, give three months' notice for your annual meeting, it's not really necessary in such a small environment. And so some of the changes regard some of those reporting requirements, recognizing that if you're around each other every day, you can probably decide when that meeting is going to be less notice. Okay. I guess what I'm very much interested in, and Kim, since you have to write this, do you find that the legislature in California is receptive to co-ops? They're willing to work with co-ops? They understand co-ops? I wish I could say yes. <laughs> but uh, I think that there's a lot of misunderstandings about co-ops, and uh, and it's sort of the the same as it is everywhere. You know, once people know about them, and once they once they get it, they're yeah, that's, that makes sense. That's great. Okay, uh, it's, Kim, I'm it's, sorry, it's I'm sorry, but we have to take a break. We'll be right back, and we'll come back on this one. I'm sorry for the interruption. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Everything Cooperative is our program, and we have Ms. Mai Nguyen and Kim Kuzer on the line with us. And before we uh, went to break, uh, I had asked a question about this legislature out there, the politicians, do they know co-ops? I have I have testified here in the D.C. area on housing co-ops, particularly affordable housing co-ops, and the lady, this city council person, knew a lot about co-ops. And then I testified that there's a council person that's tr trying to build a couple of stores in the food desert area in Ward 7 and Ward 8, and I was testified that I thought that the uh, food co-ops could do a lot better with probably with the same money they could get four food co-ops versus two big box stores. Uh, and he didn't know, it seemed like I was talking to a deer in headlights. <laughs> so um, that's why I asked the question of, of 
how because when they're making a law about co-ops, I was thinking, well, maybe they're very much they know a lot about co-ops and you can get a lot of support from them. And um, perhaps the cooperators would have a lot of political power when it came to voting people in. They could vote people in that are sympathetic to the cooperative model because of all of the good things that the cooperative model does. But you said they don't know it. Uh, they're not as knowledgeable as you would like for them to be. Is that right? Is that what I heard before we took a break? I do want to say one of the really uh, very cool things about getting this initiative together was bringing together um, a lot of co-op people to really talk about, okay, how should this legislation go? It took like two years because first we wanted to make sure that the legislation was something that everybody in the co-op community supported. And then we needed to, as a united front, um, go to the legislature and then, um, you know, encourage them to pass it. So it was a, in, in some ways, it was a very nice process to get all all these people that have been in co-ops a long time or really support co-ops together and um, and support an initiative. So, um, and hope we can do that more all across the all across the country. So, are you inviting all of those people to your April conference? Yes, we would love to have people come to our April conference. Well, when I saw it on your events calendar for next year, I put it on my calendar. I'm going to see if I can get out. Well, there. good. We'd love to have you out, Vernon. I love Cal- I love San Diego. Man. It's just, yeah. Yes. Hope the fires don't go down that way. Yeah, me <laughs> too. Yeah. That looks bad on TV. I. Mm, it looks very bad. Um, so how many co-ops, I still want to say M-I-A, Maya, it's me. How many co-ops, my, my, okay. How many, how many co-ops do you think you may end up with in working with these young folk? And, and, and are the, do you have, if, if these young people are farming, and maybe if there's five or ten of them on a farm, are they trying to buy the farm of the person that's going to retire? Is that the is that the uh, plan? Yeah, so there are some different scenarios. In, in one case, uh, they're leasing from an an uh, older uh, couple, and the idea is that over time, maybe they will be able to purchase that. Um, so in the interim, just having a lease enables them to develop, you know, a good working relationship, um, get out some kinks from the beginning um, when it's lower stakes. Um, There's another group where uh, the young farmers, they've been operating the farm for a number of years on leased land. Um, They don't really have intentions on purchasing it, um, but uh, they they have established a really good long-term relationship with the landowner. to your question about, you know, how many do do I think will form? Um, you know, I think that there's so much uh, creativity that's possible, um, and there are many people who are looking to pass on their farm. You know, um, there's less of this tendency nowadays for uh, the children of farmers to stay on the farm. Many of them move away, move to cities. Um and so there isn't a clear succession plan, but um, there are young farmers who are cropping up who would like to be able to access that land, but also some for some of the farms, now they're looking at uh, their current employees as the potential owners. So it's more of a conversion model, um, and and we uh, one of our colleagues at CCCD is, is working on that. Um, and, and it makes a lot of sense, right? <laughs> like mm-hmm. the people who already work on the farm know how to run it, uh, know it really well. There's a lot of trust between the owner and those workers, and the workers are invested in you know maintaining that business. And so that's another possibility that really expands um, this arena of the worker cooperative farms. And um, I think that in the next you know 15 years, as that aging population, this that average age of 58, you know, becomes higher and higher, um, we're going to see a greater transition. And I think worker cooperative farms are going to be 
increasingly relevant. The um, Federation of Southern Co-ops, which is mostly, if not, I'd say maybe 95% African Americans, that they're dealing with the same issues. Um, but most of them own their land, but they're forming co-ops to try to both keep the land. There were some numbers that they've been on the program a couple of times, and um, I don't know, in 1940, African Americans owned 30 million acres of land, and now it's down to 3 million acres of land. It's something like that, some huge sort of loss of land ownership. And so they have been uh, trying to keep the land and forming co-ops so that they can keep the land and also that they can pass the land on, uh, even if the, the the children, you know, go off and leave Alabama and Mississippi and go to Chicago or New York or something. So it's the same kinds of problems that they are facing in the South that you're facing in California. The other thing that's very interesting that I, I learned in Cincinnati um, is this, it's the same uh, phenomenon that's happening with manufacturing firms that they have all of these baby boomers that own it, and too often they'll just close up because they don't have anybody to buy it. And so looking for the to the employees to buy the business is a really great out for the baby boomer uh, that they can get some money for it, and it's great for the community because these people keep their jobs. Uh, so it's great all the way around, this sort of transferring of the assets to the to the workers. It's like, how, how can we get some kind of synergies from what you guys are doing in California to what they're doing in Chicago or what they're doing in in 13 southern states, um, trying to keep the land, keep the farming, uh, and keep the land in farming, which is the other thing I would think Kim and Mai would be a big issue in California would be all of the gentrification that the farmlands become houses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. The pressure from development uh, is is one of the greatest causes of the loss of, loss of agricultural land. And um, and I, I actually farm in Sonoma County, which is about an hour north of San Francisco. And as San Francisco becomes increasingly expensive, more and more people are moving to Sonoma and commuting to San Francisco. Um, but then they buy up farmland and... Um, it's no longer an agricultural production, or they might have a hobby farm, but mm-hmm. you know we're losing that land, um, and also to development. So it's it's a Sonoma uh, Napa Valley, where you guys do grapes up there and make wine. <laughs> and that's what Sonoma and Napa are famous for. Yeah, Sonoma and Napa are right next to each other, and they're both just north of San Francisco. Uh, I myself am not a wine producer. But, um, yes, a lot of my neighbors are. Uh, I was hoping that could come and get some wine. All right. <laughs> <laughs> you still could, just not for me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. My, how did you get into this business, this cooperative business? Uh, well, um, I, I formally became involved in cooperatives when I uh, was in college and I was looking for affordable housing, <laughs> and so I joined um, a, a large uh, housing cooperative, one of the student housing cooperatives, and um, that's when I really, you know, uh, I, I just saw kind of all of my <laughs> childhood dreams come true hmm. of what it's like to um, work with other people, share with other people, and kind of the practical elements of what you can achieve, right? That we could have affordable housing, we could have a decently clean home that's functional. Um, but also I think the part about co-op that we don't always talk about when we do co-op development of businesses is the um, the social benefit of, um, of camaraderie, but also the creativity that comes about. Um, so... You know, for our, our house, we ended up building a roof deck that then looked out to the Golden Gate Bridge. <laughs> or, um, you know, we built 
a hot tub <laughs> next okay. to our, uh, our stream. And, um, you know, it was just a very supportive and fun environment. And I think that's really uh, what inspired me to continue to be a part of cooperatives is that simultaneous, um, you know, meeting of our basic needs, um, but also, you know, um, catalyzing and exciting you know, the best parts of being a social being. <laughs> okay. Well, listen, um, I w- we've got to take our second break, and I want to come back and talk a little bit more, particularly about uh, when there were conflicts, how did you all resolve that? But we'll be right back. Your voice in the nation's capital, News Talk 1450 and 95.9 FM 95.9. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. program is Everything Cooperative. This program is sponsored by the National Cooperative Bank. And NCB's mission is to support and be an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members, especially in low-income communities, by providing innovative financial and related services. And we are so proud to have them as a sponsor. They've been extremely, extremely supportive. More than just financial much more sort of helping us keep this program on the air now kim it's been four years that we've been on air great and we were only going to do it for one month the co-op month in october four years ago and i enjoyed the conversations like we're having today and seem like other people enjoy it and we can get the word out because most people don't know about co-ops as we talked about a little earlier but, you know, uh, Mai, you were, you were saying that in these farmer cooperatives, um, getting folks to work together, particularly in high-stress situations at harvest time where you have to come together as a group and make decisions, so learning how to do that. And then there's social organizations. So when there are conflict, uh, any time, whether it's a high-stress time or not, how, how do you all train um, the young people or the workers to resolve their conflict and make choices and move on? Yeah, uh, (laughs) that's a good question. Um, Well, I try to provide as much training and the tools um, so that uh, they have a protocol for approach so that when they are in those high-stress situations, um, they don't get overwhelmed with the emotions of it, but have uh, trained themselves to respond kind of in a more systematic way. And, you know, an initial question is to ask, you know, is this conflict about operations? Is it about government? Uh, or is it a result of stress and sort of the emotional uh, triggers that are transpiring? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, Getting farmers in particular to differentiate between uh, those three kind of elements is really key. Um, and and then referring to the, the protocols that they have around those particular areas, right? So if it's an operation, then who's actually responsible for that? Is it something that you actually really need to think about? Um, and then with governance, you know, again, is that, you know, who's, who do you talk to? Um, what is the system of accountability that you've set up either, um, you know, in your bylaws very formally, um, or maybe you do have an operations agreement that you can refer to. Um, but certainly taking that moment to understand what kind of conflict it is um, allows for people to sort of emotionally distance themselves from it a little bit uh, so it's not as charged. And um, And I also remind... Uh, you know, those folks that like, you know, this is your business that's at stake, right? And so um, you don't want a small uh, conflict to then escalate to the point where you're risking uh, essentially your your livelihood. Um, So you're trying to find these ways, right, of um, referring to the systems that you've already put in place uh, for accountability um, will help you de-escalate a situation um, so that you can have a working relationship. 
Have you gotten any feedback from from the people you're training to how these these skills both help them in situations and how it helps them in their everyday life? Uh, in terms of the conflict resolution or just the cooperative development conflict in conflict resolution. Oh, sure. Yeah, I've, I've received feedback from participants about how these steps have helped them, yeah, in their day-to-day life of, you know, this process of um, stopping, reflecting uh, on the cause, the root cause of, uh, of their sense of conflict and, um, and trying to get, gain clarity in terms of the process of how to address it. Um, you know, we... We see that in all aspects of our lives, right? Like, if you if you have kids and you know they're uh, throwing a tantrum, you know sometimes it's like, oh, well, maybe it's just because they're tired and it's not about any particular emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, or you know, if you're not in a co-op but you still have other coworkers, you know sometimes um, uh, conflict may arise just because someone's having a bad day or they. Uh, are experiencing some family issues that are causing them stress, or sometimes it's about uh, unclear expectations. And so revisiting that through, um, you know, the operational channel is a way of addressing it. So, yeah, these are certainly transferable skills that people are learning through the co-op development process. Well, over the years that I've had people on, they've talked about the skills that you learn in a cooperative and how they do affect the everyday life in a very positive way. And in the other area I've heard is on the financial side, uh, particularly learning how to budget and not only budgeting the, uh, putting a proper budget for, in this case, a farm or a housing co-op or a food co-op or whatever, but as a group putting this budget together and then working through and through the year with that budget in mind, that they begin to do it in their life, in their home, and for their family. And it helps them to get a better sense and control over their finances. So, oh, have you had that same kind of experience? And where else have you heard that this, and this could be Kim or Mai, that, that the knowledge, the skills that are learned in, in the cooperative helps in the everyday life? I'd really love for Kim to answer that because there's an example of a co-op in Lompoc that she had helped develop, and the effects of that um, have been really inspiring. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, there's a lot of ways that being involved in co-ops can really help people, and certainly if you have to um, monitor the finances in a business, you're going to be able to apply that to your own life. But I think also when you're talking about economic development projects, you um, people learn gifts that they have that they really didn't know that they had and skills that they have. And um, we have um, undertaken um, a number of projects that are specifically designed to, to serve underserved groups and to create opportunities through cooperative development. And in Lompoc, um, we developed, uh, we helped to develop a worker co-op. It's a, it's a green cleaning co-op. So um, it's um, not high skilled, but the cleaning business has the potential of being um, a, a decent living. You, know, you can you can earn a living wage, but it also uh, tends to be very harsh. It's hard work, and also the chemicals that are used um, can be harmful to people. So we formed this uh, cleaning co-op that only uses very natural products and so forth. And uh, in Lompoc, um, the women that are the members of the co-op are um, mostly um, Latino Their first language is Spanish. And um, we had, um, just after the first year of the co-op, two of the women were able to buy a home for the first time. What? And, yeah, (laughs) it wasn't because, yeah, I want to say it's not because they were making so much money in the cleaning business. It was because they came to see themselves as, I think, um, empowered to um, apply for um, programs that helped first-time homeowners. 
And then they, when they applied, they were able to show that they're a business owner. And so it's a really exciting thing. It's a very exciting thing to see people. When you give people the opportunity to really own a business, to really be a decision maker, it's just amazing how it just spills over into every part of their life. Well, I didn't expect that. that that's awesome to, because I've also sold real estate as part of my life. Uh, and when somebody that didn't know they could buy a home ends up being able to buy a home. I saw one guy, I was talking to him about it. And when he walked away from it, it really looked like he was walking on a cloud. It looked like he was ascending. He was so happy to be able to yeah. purchase a home. And so, wow. Um, do you have a sense? Uh, I'm going to take you to a book called um, Cities Building Wealth that the Democracy Collaborative uh, put out. Have you seen that little booklet? No, I haven't, but I, I sure will. Okay. Do you mind? You can get it on their webpage uh, free. And they talk about a lady, Christina, who is uh, Mexican American in New York and made services, cleaning services, and she went from $7 an hour to $20 an hour after they created the worker cooperative. And I've been told that that doesn't happen. That That's three times increase. Um, and I like that better than a minimum wage going to $15 an hour because this this way they going from 7 to 20 means that they were able to get more efficient, become more efficient in what they were doing, and they were able to share the surplus or the profits so that it mm-hmm. doesn't cause inflation in, in the marketplace when you just raise uh, minimum wages. So I think co-ops have a lot of ways it can help the economy. And what she ended up doing, she had a choice. I mean, she had two kids, and she decided to work less hours and spend more time with her children, which I think is phenomenal to be able to do also, just as as important as buying a home is having time to raise your children. And I also think that there are other things that we don't realize that we want to always put things into dollars and cents, which is important in our um, society. But also what we found, we've replicated the project that we had in Lompoc, and we have another green cleaning co-op actually right in Davis where our our office is located. And um, what I found in both of these co-ops is that the women have um, much more control over their life, you know. Um, They would face um, in in the jobs they previously had, they would have to have the choice between um, going to their um, children's uh, an event at school or a t- parent-teacher conference. Um, going to something like that, they would have to go to their employer and ask for time off and really sometimes even risk losing their job, yep. you know, and they have so much, you know, they're owners, they're the, they control their business, so they're able to have a flexible schedule, so they're able to be parents, they're able to make those choices, like you said, reduce their hours, or, you know, have their schedule, oh, I think I, I would prefer a night shift, cleaning at night instead of during the day, or on this day I don't want to work. So it's really nice that they have so much more control over their life. And that is, you can't, you can't put a dollar figure on that. Exactly. You really can't put a dollar figure. And in that, I told you we've been here for four years. And that first month, we had a guy named Papa Sin on the program from Senegal. Uh-huh. Okay. And what he also talked about was how people came into the co-op. They got the social skills. They created some wealth. And they got the governance skills of how to make decisions, how to solve conflict that we've been talking about. And then they would go and get on the school board or they would run for city council. or, And so it's sort of like they would just go up in terms of responsibility and increase for always sort of happening, what can I do to help the community? Co-ops are so great, and that's why we're having this program, to give people the knowledge about them. And uh, it's sort of one of the best-kept secrets in America, so we're trying to get this, put a spotlight on it. And then we have our final break here we're getting ready to come into, and then I'd like to talk about any other areas, because it looks like you're working on all of them. I like what you've given us about the long poke. And is that L-O-N-G-P-O-K-E? Is that what you L-O-M-P-A-C-E. Okay. But we'll be right back. <laughs> 
Welcome back, everybody. Uh, this is Vernon Oaks, and we have Kim Kuntz and my, my, I got you. <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> There's a lot of letters in there. My win, yeah. My win, okay. Yeah, you don't spell it win, W-I-N or W-H-E-N, so it's hard for me. Okay. And when you're talking about the green cooperatives, it took me to the Evergreen Cooperatives in Cleveland, and they've created three worker-owned cooperatives in Cleveland with uh, partnering with the university, universities and hospitals, and they have a laundry cooperative and, and using those same kind of uh, green chemicals for cleaning such that it doesn't cause problems for the workers and for the clients. So there's different forms out here, different things that people are doing to create co-ops. So, Kim, uh, any other particular area that you are working on that you have doing great well, things about? Yeah, a new area we're uh, just embarking, and we're just starting to launch two projects um, doing uh, worker-owned home care projects and uh, worker co-ops. And Mai does her work out of uh, San Diego. She works remotely. And so we're starting one in San Diego and one in Yolo County, which is closer to where our, our offices are. And that's a really exciting project. And uh, maybe Mai can tell you a little bit more about the San Diego end. Yeah. Um, you know, earlier we were talking about how you know, there are these retiring farmers, um, but the overall trend is that we have a large um, retiring aging population, and many people move to San Diego to do that. So we yes. have a, a, a large, yeah, um, older and elderly population. Uh, we also have a large um, veteran population here because we have Navy, um, Marines, uh, and Air Force close by. And then many of the mil military um, officers end up staying here um, so with both groups, there's a lot of need for, um, you know, home care. And, and we, so we see that there is um, the, also the need for quality care uh, wherein there is, um, you know, um, fair wages so that people want to stay in that sector and uh, continue to develop their relationships with uh, you know, people that they're caring for and, and these rather, you know, intimate situations. So uh, for San Diego, this home care cooperative model is very relevant. Well, the home health care market is huge. Um, I know I've, I've spoken to the president and the, the chief executive officer of Cooperative Home Care Associates in the Bronx, and they have about 2,000 staff members. They started out with 12 Um and so I think that's the largest, I think I've heard it being the l largest uh, worker-owned cooperative in the U.S. But it's it's a very big business. Um, yeah. Yeah, it seemed like it would be perfect for San Diego with the, with the uh, number of aged people there. It seemed like Florida would be another place it would be good to have uh, home health care. Yeah, you know, the um, Cooperative Development Foundation has really, um, it, that's a national nonprofit in uh, D.C., as you know, Vernon, mm -hmm. and um, they have really uh, taken on um, the field of home care and encouraged worker co-op uh, development, and they hold trainings, and um, Home Care Associates has been an integral part of that, is sharing their knowledge and, and what what it takes to be a successful worker cooperative. And, and my and another person from our office, Angelica, and I just went to their training um, last month in D.C. And it was just wonderful to see uh, an initiative that is um, being uh, really driven by a nonprofit that, uh, that has really done the research and so forth. And the, it's, it's 
was really good. So I'm hoping that we can see a lot of home care cooperatives across the nation because it is another area of potential abuse of, of workers and, and very, very low pay. So there's like two sides. There's really a need for good work and dedicated work and people that stay. And there's also a need for um, for jobs and to improve those those jobs and the working conditions in them. And so it's a great pair, <laughs> pairing. Yeah, and co-ops, because of everything that you said earlier, that the worker, the employee, has a say in how the organization works. I mean, creating creating the bylaws or changing the bylaws or the house rules or the rules of how the organization is going to work and how you set your your schedule, uh, what do you do with profits. Um, so there's a lot of different – they have input and just having input, having a say, when a person has say, they give them so much more confidence uh, and self-assurance that they can go out and buy a house. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Or spend more time with their children have a choice. So that's home yeah, health care. Go ahead, Kim. Oh, I was just going to share another story yes. from Lompoc that I really like uh, that kind of is really exemplifies what you're talking about. Uh, one of the um, young women who is a, a member of the co-op was at the office late at night mixing. They mix their own um, cleaning products in order to really make sure that it's all natural and also to save money. So they were at the office late at night, and she had brought her son, her seven-year-old son with her and her uh, and her son said, Mommy, we're going to get in trouble. We're here late at night. We're going to get in trouble. And she told him, don't worry. I own the place. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it's like a pride. You know, there's a pride that people take when they when they own a business and so forth. And it, that's, a, that's something also that's priceless. Dame Pauline Green, who was the president of the International Cooperative Alliance, said that cooperatives help people to come out of poverty with dignity. Exactly. And I've liked that saying. I say it as often as I can. Um, I grew up in Bluefield, West Virginia, in coal mining country, uh, fairly poor. Didn't know it because we played a lot and ran a lot and all of that stuff. Um, but to get to somebody to come out of Poverty with dignity is awesome, and a lot of it is education and the things that we're talking about, where people have a say, and they also learn how to manage conflict and learn how to make decisions. Do you all have consensus or unanimous decision making, or is it fifty-one uh, percent? Well, it depends on what the what the owners of the business want you know some of them want consensus decision making and that is um there's so many good ways to do that now and some people you know want to have majority votes or maybe there's some things they want to have majority and some things they want to have consensus on so that's the thing about a co-op is that it's democratic and the way that you um apply that democracy is up to the people who own and own a co-op that was the right answer. It depends on what the people want. Okay. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Okay, so we talked about home health care. We talked about the young lady. Any other areas, Kim, that you guys are working on now? Any new new areas? Well, the only thing I can think of is that we have been doing um, more work. I started out in co-ops, um, really working in the area of child care co-ops. And, um, and then there was a, a big, uh, this was about in the 1980s and, um, and 90s, and there's been a lull and people haven't been as interested in them. But there seems to be a resurgence of interest in, in child care co-ops and so around the country. And so because I um, have experience in that area, uh, I was fortunate enough to work in North Dakota and start their help. Uh, another center there start their first child care co-op. So it's exciting to kind of, you know, at the beginning of my career start in child care co-ops, and here I am. I hope I'm not the end of my career, but I'm certainly at a, at a, oh, getting older, and um, <laughs> and here I am back at child care. <laughs> well, I just had last night uh, a property, a 500-unit property, the 
president of the tenant association said that they wanted to start a child care co-op and I was reading your bio and see you've written a book about it and I wanted to get a copy of that to give to her. Um, I would love that. I uh, would love to, to share a copy with you. And with 500 residents, I would think that they could really use the child care co-op because that's one of the main reasons that people can't work is how do you take care of your children either before school, after school, or before they go to school, how do you how do you how do you get that child care? And the other one was transportation. We don't have that problem in in D.C., but I think in rural areas, that transportation would be an issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, Papa Sin four years ago said that that was their second co-op that they created. The first one was a housing co-op. The second was a transportation co-op, and the third one was a school co-op because they uh-huh. needed people to work. <laughs> Okay, what would you like, we've got a couple more minutes left, what would you like to leave our listeners with? What's the message? Well, come to San Diego to our conference. We're going to have um, a lot of different um, workshops on a lot of different topics, um, just about everything. We'll talk about worker co-ops, consumer food co-ops. There's going to be a special session, um, a pre-session, actually, on Saturday the 28th on a new form of of decision-making called sociocracy. And so if people want to learn on that, learn about that, there's an intensive on that day. There's also an hour workshop if you want to a little bit of a taste of what it's like on um, uh, d- on during the regular um, part of the conference. But we're really excited about it, excited uh, to have it be in San Diego, right on the bay. I mean, Maya, you're in San Diego. Why don't you share a little bit about the location? Yeah, it's a beautiful location uh, that uh, is adjacent to a pier. So if uh, you need a break from any of the workshops, you can step outside and the ocean is right there. Um and uh, it's it's also just in a in a very quiet part of San Diego. You know, we are a large city, but uh, this part is it's, you'll be at a conference where you get to learn, but also it it would be very much like a vacation. I'm ready. Uh, that's April the 28th for the pre-conference, and the 29th and the 30th, 2018, in San Diego. I'm looking forward to. It. Thank you, lady, for being on and giving us all of this great information. Everybody else, uh, we'll see you next Thursday, and please live cooperatively. Thanks.